Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Jimmy Pardo, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedurals, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about Network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or The Mothership. And today we're looking at Original Recipe, Season 13, Episode 15, Bitch. Joining me to do that is true crime author and the host of the podcast, Crime Writers On, Rebecca Lavoie. Hello, Rebecca. Hey, Kevin. I'm not sure if it's just because we're in a closet together, but I feel like I'm getting a hot flash right now. Oh, stop it right there. And rounding out the panel is our very special guest from the Never Not Funny podcast, comedian Jimmy Pardo. Yay! Good morning or afternoon. I don't know when people are listening to this. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Hello. He gets it because he's been a podcaster for about a billion years. Yeah, we're contacting him by phone. Well, <laughs> well how do you usually contact people? <laughs> well, we usually wait till they're in their nice studio. And I know you have a very nice studio, but you're very kind to put down the orange juice and take some time to talk to us on our podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, I, it's not, I tell you this, it's not often I do a podcast that homework is required before I talk. So <laughs> consider yourselves very uh, lucky. Uh, we're kind of assholes like that, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. So he just kind of wings it on uh, Never Not Funny, which just had its 2,000th episode? No, no, that's bananas. Uh, no, I think we're close to like 700. We, oh, okay. uh, we're, on, we're in our 20th season. Damn. Gotcha. That's, oh. And we're coming up on our 11th year anniversary, which is, I believe, at the end of March or beginning of April. I forget the exact day we started. He's like the SVU of podcasts. I know. I mean, <laughs> it was podcasting before people had like, before real people iPhones. gave a shit about podcasts. Yeah. Did yeah. You... Uh, oh, you got that right. Did you and Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner all invent podcasting together? Or? Yeah, we, uh, we all got together. We'd all go over to Sid Caesar's house, and uh, <laughs> we uh, when we were done writing the uh, 2,000-year-old man, we said, I said, guys, have a little something for me. You two have a bit for a lifetime. Give me something. <laughs> now, tell Tell us about your annual podcast-a-thon, which is on March 4th. Oh, sure. Oh, hang on a second. There's My, my, uh, my alarm is going off to alert me that you guys will be calling. <laughs> um, hang on. You can probably hear it. Yeah, it's the worst fine. sound you've ever heard in your entire life. There it is. And now it's off. Right. Uh, Parkastathon uh, is what if what if that alarm went off every time somebody mentioned Parkastathon <laughs> in my house? <laughs> that alarm sounds like it came from 1984. By the way, it does not sound. You know like what? A... Mind your business. I would alarm clock. Okay, I have that, and I've uh, I, I'm very ex- I've got uh, my Cindy Lauper posters. I've got everything that wakes me up. <laughs> Casio keyboard. Yeah, I got my Casio. I've got uh, I've got a keyboard. I've got my uh, Commodore 64 computer that I listen to podcasts on. Uh, I have not left 1985. 
five. So to circle back, a Park Castathon is our yearly event where uh, my co-host uh, on Never Not Funny, uh, Matt Belknap, and I are joined by Pat Francis, and the three of us host a 12-hour marathon version of our show, which streams live at Never Not Funny, as uh, as you mentioned, on March 4th, from noon to midnight Pacific time, so from 3 to 3 Eastern, and we have a different guest on every half hour, and we basically we treat it like a, tele- a telethon, and we're raising money for Smile Train, which is a great organization that goes to third world countries and performs the surgery on children, and sometimes adults, but mostly children, to have their uh, cleft palate or cleft lip fixed, and these folks can't otherwise afford it, so... Doctors donate their time, and then people donate money. And by the way, you could donate anywhere from a dollar to as much as you can, but each surgery only costs 250 bucks. For that little amount of money, you're basically changing a child's life. Wow. So we've been lucky enough to raise close to $800,000 now for this mm. charity uh, over the years for this event. Sounds a lot more altruistic than Rokerthon. I'll tell you. That's pretty <laughs> yeah, awesome. You know, I, I'll better be doing stuff behind the scenes That's what I, uh, in order to cover that. Uh, Rebecca, I'm going to give you two facts about Jimmy that you didn't know. Okay, okay? go. Oh, he was, I'd like to hear them. Okay. He was the audience warm-up guy for The Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien. Really? Yeah. Huh. So it's, you probably had just one routine that you could do every night of the week, right? <laughs> uh, you know, the beauty was uh, I had about the same four jokes that I would do every night of the week. And then, you know, it, it, there's never the stereotype of a comedian going, hey, what's your name and where, do you, uh, where are you from? What do you do? And that was a job where you could really do that because every <laughs> night you had different people in the audience. Yeah. Classic crowd and, work. And they've, they've been sitting outside probably like in a line for, you know, four hours. So they probably like were game for that, right? There was no better audiences than the Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien. We were only on there for seven months before, you know, hell broke loose in late night television. And then we went over to TBS and I was with Conan at TBS for another five years. And those audiences were even better. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Second fact about Jimmy Rebecca, you didn't know. His father-in-law is Walter Koenig. Check off from the original Star Trek. Wow. That is actually a fact that I can get down with, as you know, being the old school trekker that I am. That's pretty exciting. Jimmy, how long until that fact got really annoying to you? <laughs> well, I'd like to blame it on this phone call, but I can't. Um, <laughs> it was, you know, here, here's the thing. My, uh, it never meant anything to me other than the fact that it's my, at the time, my girlfriend's father. And I was meeting my girlfriend's father like I would anybody's father. And because I was never into Star Trek. I, it was never my thing. I had never seen any of the movies. I'd watched some of the TV show, but it wasn't my bag. And so it took a while for it to sink in just how iconic he is. You know, he's got his handprints down at the Chinese theater, which, you know, is a very small group of people. And then he has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I mean, that, that's pretty amazing stuff to accomplish here in, in Los Angeles or in Hollywood in general. Um, so people aren't throwing it, things at you saying, oh, could you get this signed for me? <laughs> oh, oh, no, they are. Oh. And, uh, and that's annoying. Uh or when people come up to me and go, I want to shake your hand. I'm the biggest Star Trek fan. I'm like, I don't know why I'm involved in this <laughs> conversation at all. Uh, but the neat part about it now is my son is nine years old, and he's really into sci-fi and stuff like that. So to him, the fact that his grandpa is on Star Trek is like just amazing, and he, he loves it. So I get to watch it through his eyes, and I think that's you know pretty amazing. And again, I think what Walter has done, I mean, again, it's to be in this iconic group of five or six people from Star Trek that are, you know, known worldwide. It's pretty amazing. It is pretty amazing. Well, I'm impressed with your thing that is your claim to fame that you didn't do on purpose, for sure. <laughs> yeah, right? I didn't do it at all. Well, it's better than my old claim to fame where everybody assumed I was related to Don Pardo, and I'm not. <laughs> but people would just assume I was, and I, you know, I would go, oh, okay, and I, eventually I would have to, you know, fine, I'm related. Stop asking me. That's right. Do I get the part? <laughs> right. 
So now, of all of the Law & Order franchises, do you have two cops who are your favorite detective team? Favorite Law & Order detective team. Uh, you know, uh, well, listen, I don't know any of their names, there, uh, which is fascinating because there was a time, like everybody, my wife and I, I think we would watch three episodes a day. <laughs> um, and then, you know, you stop doing that and you realize, oh, there's more to life than watching these numbskulls. So it was years before I had to watch another one before you insisted I watch one. <laughs> um, I guess if I had to, though, it would be the, the two that were in this, Jesse L. Martin and, uh, and Jerry Orbach. Yeah, classic choice. That's a very, I don't want to call it a safe choice, but it is a classic choice. You're not the first guest to point to Briscoe and Green as being your favorite team, even though you don't know their names. That's super fine. No worries about that. I'm, I'm thrilled that you said them out loud for me. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure I knew what they were, but there's a very good chance I wouldn't have. And I, again, I just watched it and took notes. So I really should have done maybe their names. <laughs> um, and then, and this, is, this will just show you how bad I am. My memory has just gone to hell. What was the one, the really short-lived Law & Order franchise that it was actually fantastic? Trial by um, Jury or Criminal Intent? Los, uh, Los Angeles was one, too. Oh, uh, no one thinks that one's fantastic. Okay, yeah, he wasn't thinking of that. <laughs> no, it was the one with the, one with the, the uh, Lily from uh, Cheers. Oh, yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, Trial by Jury. Tri- yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was, wasn't that great? Yeah, I liked it. I mean, we, don't, we never talk about it in the podcast since nobody saw it, but <laughs> I liked it, yeah. But I'm a big fan of the sort of meta spinoff Law & Order things. I don't know. Like you, I watched three, four episodes a day, often not on purpose, which is sort of how this whole podcast was created because I discovered that um, I wasn't alone in that weird phenomenon. There was a time, maybe it's still this way, right? As you know, that I think, what was it, A&E and USA both were playing them like nonstop during the day. So, like, you got you it. Stop back and forth. It was, aren't those the two channels? Yep. Yeah. Oh, they still are. <laughs> Sundance has oh, an okay. eye on. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Jimmy, do you have a favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite law and order district attorney prosecutorial team. Well, again, I don't know the name. And then, well, there's the, there's the, you know, the rotating girl who you, you never know who you're going to get. <laughs> um, there was the one, you know, you know who I liked a lot? I and mean, you guys will remember this. And, and again, I don't. She was a um, victim at one point where the plot line had to do with her wearing a scarf, maybe. Does that sound right? Like a kerchief around her neck. And then she ended up years later and uh, being uh, the assistant DA. Right? I, I'm sure. All? I got to be honest. Like, that's one of those wiki things that I would have to look at. Someone up. will tweet that at us. But yes. it's not uncommon for these actors to come on and play a bit role, and all of a sudden they wind up in the cast a, right. a season or two later. From criminal to lawyer, from uh, <laughs> from cop yeah. from cop to bad guy. It happens over and over again. That's uh, That was so great about the, what was it, the, uh, the, uh, the Tonys last year where they showed all the Tony <laughs> nominees that had done their time on Law & Order. I thought that was pretty amazing. We're here with Lily Flynn, our teenage promotions assistant. Hello, Lily. Hi, Dad. <laughs> Congratulations on being chosen among the thousands to take this job. Thank you. Well, it's quite an honor. It is an honor, isn't it? You get to come and tell everybody about how they're going to sign up for our new newsletter at lawandorderpodcast.com. It's great. You get to know all the info about our upcoming shows and more. And by doing this, each episode, we're going to pick a Law & Order Marathon winner. They'll get a free oval car magnet. Right. It says that they have done their 26.2 hours of watching Law & Order or SVU or Criminal Intent. This week's winner is Sarah Downs of Arlington, Virginia. Congratulations, Sarah. To be our next winner, sign up at lawandorderpodcast.com. All right, let's take a look at the first half of this episode, season 13, episode 15, Bitch. 
Well, score one for the dog walkers who discover the body of Bradley the stockbroker, beamed and bloodied at the bottom of the stairs. Your time of death comes in Saturday afternoon somewhere in the neighborhood of two. Bruising up and down the right side, right ankle looks broken. Falling down the stairs will do that. I doubt he tripped. Defensive wounds? There's no way that head wound was an accident. So somebody clocked him before he fell down. Brad hasn't been so lucky investing lately. His client list is full of wealthy ladies, including his fiancée photographer, Lindsay Tucker. At the time of the murder, she was supposedly doing a shoot for cosmetics maven Jackie Scott. We learn that Jackie and Lindsay are mother and daughter. Both had Brad as a broker, and both had been sleeping with him, giving a new meaning to the term asset liquidity. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Briscoe and Green think Jackie's answering machine message to Brad was a cover. But once Lindsay learns about her mother's affair with her fiancé, she says she's the killer. Meanwhile, Jackie tries to put pressure on her old friend, D.A. Arthur Branch, to get McCoy to go easy on her daughter. Now, Rebecca, I know this episode starts with your all-time favorite Briscoe one-liner. Yep. He tumbled and then got beamed. Could be with that. So that's what a one-iron is for. So that's what a one-iron's for. Really, really hey. obscure, like super masculine uh, joke. Anybody who's ever played golf knows it's a useless club to carry around in your bag. But yeah, t- typical Briscoe, super Briscoe-y. I love it. I, you could almost hear like the little cymbal crash right after that one. Yeah, loved it. Jimmy, is that the professional term, rim shot? You would know? It is It is professional. I will I will own that. I will I will tell you there was a time in my life I carried a one iron. That's how good I was at golf at one time. <laughs> <laughs> So that's what uh, a now I wouldn't for. carry one unless, of course, I'm going to murder somebody. Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> uh, I loved, by the way, in that opening scene where they come in and there's a dog paw print that is a cartoon-like dog paw print. <laughs> like it's like somebody literally went, "Well, we got to put a print right here," and it's almost like Blue's Clues. It's that perfect of a paw print. <laughs> it was a clue, so it was. Yeah, it was right. And Steve's over there in the big chair. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy, now this episode has a flurry of Briscoe one-liners. What is your opinion on? Grizzled old man snark. Have you ever actually read a prenup? No, but I should have. This year, if it's not designed by Kieselstein Cord, it's not in my jewelry drawer. Mine either. I don't think I ever met a size two. Do you have any idea what I pay in city taxes? I do, and I want to thank you for these new shoes. You're a simple man, aren't you? I do my best. I, I would love the Jerry Orbach. Uh, my opinion is I love it. Love it. it, it mainly because I, what I discovered about this, and again, I, these are long-winded and not uh, helpful to your show. Um, <laughs> what I discovered about this was I don't know how my wife and I watched these for six months straight because it's atrocious. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the writing is re- – and, and every cliche is true. Like, really? You're getting your, your dress hemmed and you got to tell the person, oh, no, uh, an inch higher, please. The cops are talking to you. Right, exactly. But how did they find the witness at a dress fitting? So just like imagine – this is what he's talking about, about like the bad writing, right? So like the cops are interviewing people. You know, you go to their house. You go to their place to work. Imagine the series of steps it would have taken them to right. walk into a store where she is getting a dress hemmed. Like, just wait till she's back at home or Maybe whatever. Maybe she checked in on Facebook. And that's how they found it. <laughs> right? Uh, and also, by the way, th- th- this was, I want to know that you guys who are uh, obviously obsessed with it, uh, with this episode, was the uh, the two scenes that were shot outside. One where they were talking to Lindsay the one time, like, outside of the courthouse where mm-hmm. the wind is literally knocking Jerry Orbach's wig off his yep, head. Yep. And then the next one where they're trudging through the, uh, through the snow. And it was like, I, all I was thinking is that it's a guy that's literally had four roles in his lifetime on television, 
was, oh, my God, I couldn't imagine shooting those scenes for six hours out in that weather. Yeah, it's like we have to do this walk and talk. It has to be a walk and talk. It has to be outside. Um, what? Like, like the, the fact that it was outside added nothing to the plot. So the idea that they couldn't just, like, swing into some building and, like, do it in a lobby of a, you know, one of those Fifth Avenue apartment houses they were walking by was absurd. Well, there, really there was. was an awful lot of scenes taking place in New York sky rises. And I think that maybe they said to the writers, hey, man. Can you write something where we're going to be inside for most of the time? Because this really sucks. <laughs> right, I, at some point, Orbach didn't turn to somebody and go, seriously, guys, can we do, how about even in my trailer? Can we do it somewhere other than this? <laughs> Don't you know who I am? I'm the goddamn star of this show. <laughs> I was on 42nd Street. <laughs> <laughs> I was Baby's dad in Dirty Dancing, for God's right. sakes. <laughs> I was the voice of Lumiere in Beauty and the Beast. I said be our guest. Freezing. Yeah, now I'm out here freezing. <laughs> But I do like the interviews when they they always have to interview the society dowager. Yeah. And it's like, homicide detectives, Consuela, bring us some tea. C.C. <laughs> Vandermeer. <laughs> I do like that um, just by the name, C.C. Vandermeer, whatever her name was, like Briscoe immediately knew she was going to be a rich person. And I'm just thinking like, that was actually just bad writing. <laughs> her name was C.C. Vandermeer. But yeah, they're always either calling on their servants or dismissing their nanny or getting some fancy rich person problem solved, like getting your you know evening gown hemmed that your rich boyfriend just bought for you. It's very, very tropey with the rich people in New York. Oh, God. So perfect. That's amazing that... Because you know we always we always would joke about it, and again it became so cliched to make fun of it. But when it's just people doing the menial job of a busboy who just can't put the the tray down to talk to the cops, <laughs> I never thought it never dawned on me to think about the rich people where it's like how ridiculous that if that aspect of it is. Yeah, their their job is just to be like douchey to the people around them. Basically, that's their God. job that they can't stop doing. I've never met anybody that wrote on the show. You know, I've, I've had some friends that were on the show. You know, because you know, of course the the. the uh, the hackney joke is that if you're an actor in L.A. or I'm sorry, in New York, uh, you know, it's basically jury duty. It'll be your turn eventually. <laughs> um, but I never I, n- I never met anybody that wrote on it. And I would like to. And then uh, apparently uh, I would have to keep my mouth shut because I'm sure I would insult him within the first two sentences. <laughs> but I think they were certainly playing with the the convention of law and order a little bit in this one with with so much of the winking, like, Briscoe had a one-off line in every scene. I don't think I ever met a size two. Yes. Like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Apropos of nothing. It's like, we're going to go for it in this one. We're going full on order in this script. They were, and a good example of that is when they're talking to the daughter, Lindsay, about Jackie, and uh, saying that they think that Jackie committed the crime, and, you know, her first response is, that's sick. She slept in the Lincoln bedroom. <laughs> I don't even know what that means to this second. <laughs> <laughs> a did little she, weird. Did she bring a golf club with her to the White House? Is that possible? <laughs> hey, we have a, hey, it's that guy. Hey, it's that guy. And, well, the way that she's written as a tough man, uh, we, she may as well be a guy. Who recognized the actress who played Jackie Scott? I want you to tell me who that is because there, there were some scenes where I didn't understand why this woman was cast. Um, <laughs> like, like she went from like being a great actress to why didn't they do a second take in this? Um, <laughs> oh, and by the way, speaking of that, what you just said, uh, the scene where they opened up the door and she's smoking a cigar like a cartoon <laughs> character. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, I, cigars gross me out to begin with. And then when a woman is smoking a cigar, for whatever reason, it's just – Everything about it's wrong. And so then when they open those doors and there's this woman who just delivered a horrible scene and now she's got a cigar, everything was bad. I want to get to that a little later, that the way they wrote her as essentially as the man, right. the woman in the man's world. Which that is so apropos of nothing, bit. you know. But the actress is Lucy Arnaz, Desi huh. and Lucy's daughter. Really? It was. Oh, yeah. my God, it is. You're right. 
pick a lane. So what the old man used to say, he used to say, Jack, life is like the street, like a dangerous New York street. You pick a lane. Then don't you let anybody ever cut you off. You can't cut me off, Arthur. Yeah, she was one of the original Desilu productions. Oh, very funny. Ah. <laughs> what other things was Don't she in? Don't steal that, Jimmy. Don't steal that. It's gold. <laughs> what other things was she in? Well, she was in uh, with her brother, Desi Jr. They co-starred with Lucille Ball for six seasons on Here's Lucy uh-huh. in the yeah. 60s and 70s. So this was like a child actor, all grown up kind of thing. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. But then she she also would like appear on game shows and she would be like, a, you know, she was kind of like a Zsa She was kind of famous for being famous after a while. Right. Well, she's got a big piece of that Star Trek money, right? Because wasn't Star Trek a Desilu production? I don't know. Go ask your father-in-law. See what's. <laughs> I don't think it was. A, I think it was a Paramount thing. That wasn't. Uh... We'll have to look that up. It's I'm Wikia. sure the rights for that got passed around like a woman on a pirate. I got to be honest. If this is the first I'm hearing about it, that can't be true because I'm <laughs> okay. sure that my father-in-law would have some sort of a loose seal ball story or a Desi Arnaz story. And I think her mom is like the greatest comedian of all time. Right. And I kind of feel like she's like. Billy Joel and Christy Brinkley's daughter. Oh, where it's poor like, Alexa, right. Like she's got like her musical talent and his looks, you know, instead of the <laughs> yeah. other way around. Yeah, not everybody thinks that that's true about, about her, but you're not the first person to say that for sure. Can I can I just ask one question about the beginning of this episode, like the, the setup with the stock stuff? Yeah. The super convoluted explanations of stock stuff on Law & Order, I don't get it. I just don't. All I know is when I see a lot of monitors in a scene, like there's going to be a stockbroker trying to explain something. And I'm like, I don't know anymore after the end of the scene than I knew at the beginning of the scene. Am I alone? Yeah. Wait till they go back and tell Van Buren what they found out. Then it'll be in English. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, it's hysterical you say that because that's kind of what I thought. Like I glazed over during that scene with the exception of the fact that was the first time that there was uh, somebody that for no reason was very helpful out of the gate. It wasn't, uh, <laughs> didn't, right? It, he didn't question them. He just immediately just was like, yeah, let me, t- let me go rifle through the papers for you. Well, it's because he's in an office. Now, when they're chasing guys you know, on the street, the guy looks up, gets one look at the cops, and just runs the other way. We never see a guy like in an office like just drop all of his files and run through the cubicles. <laughs> right. Better scatter away. Right, but wouldn't it be reasonable for someone who had someone's financial records to like put up a little bit of resistance before That's just thought, handing them the over waitress, to the uh, She puts up uh, a problem. You know, or you know, the dressmaker. Uh, not now, very busy to the nanny. <laughs> exactly. You know, I'm putting my coat on. It's very important I put my coat on immediately. Yeah, to the nanny. God forbid someone raise their own children. Another judgy parenting uh, moment here on Law & Order with someone having a nanny and being judged for it. But the guy's you're right. He could have at least rolled his eyes at having to like put the spreadsheet like in a different. <laughs> oh, I have to I have to sort this by amount of money lost. All right, God. That's three it's clicks a, of the mouse. I was all very happy to do it. My pleasure. <laughs> now I don't care how rich you are. If your mother sleeps with your fiance and she asks you to take the fall for killing him, you've got to say no. Um, I didn't understand. Any of that. The nonchalance with which everybody was apparently sleeping with Bradley, the victim, the women who were talking about like, you know, yeah, I went on a date with him last night. And that, and that the fiance, Lindsay, was just like, yes, but they don't mean anything to him. It, it was really, really weird. And I don't know if it was just like bad editing or bad writing or if we're supposed to be like rich people are just different than we are in the way they think oh. about what relationships are supposed to be. It was weird either way. Let me ask you this, because uh, maybe I missed this. Did we ever at least see a photograph of this Brad? Was he that strikingly handsome? (laughs) Not when he was covered in blood at the bottom of the stairs. I think that's where we saw him. Yeah, face down. So we didn't really get a look. (laughs) No wonder. I can see why everybody's banging around with this guy. Looked great. Yeah. (laughs) 
All right, let's, let's take a look at the second half of this episode. After springing Lindsay, they hear on a wiretap that the daughter took the fall for the mother for the sake of their multi-million dollar cosmetics empire. Still searching for a motive, Sutherland finds a suspiciously timed stock dump made by Brad for Jackie. She talks to an oil tycoon, blah, 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 stock market, blah, 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 <laughs> stop loss order, blah, 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 rich people problems, blah, blah, insider trading. Once arrested, Jackie claims an unusual defense. My client intends to plead not guilty by reason of mental defect. I can't wait to hear what comes next. As a result of hormone replacement therapy withdrawal. Menopause rage? Give me a break. Replacement therapy gave her menopausal rage. And all over America, husbands were saying, well, wouldn't want to be the deciding member on that journey. <laughs> and we you get mean sexist husbands all over yeah. America. <laughs> we yes, get, but yeah, thank you for clarifying that, Rebecca. <laughs> we get not one, but two psychologists, both Olivet and Skoda evaluate her. Olivet isn't buying it, but gets beat up on cross-examination. The defense calls Skoda, who thinks the menopausal rage claim is medically plausible. With a conviction in doubt, Branch confronts his old friend, Unless she takes a plea, he threatens to indict Lindsay and personally try her with a focus on taking apart the business empire. So Jackie relents. So uh, menopause caused me to kill a man. Jimmy, is there any way guys like you and I can talk about this without being physically assaulted by the the women in our lives? Uh, or uh, by anybody, I think, <laughs> in our lives. <laughs> I, I, I literally found that to be so, like, 1974, like that. that's plot line it was it just seems so dated to me well i guess it is this episode's 20 years old yeah it also it also just came out of nowhere because right. like there's nothing about this woman in any of the scenes that she's in in any part of the episode you're raging about anything you don't right? see yeah. her doing anything that's other than just sort of her flat i'm a cosmetics executive affect and smoking that cigar that one time you, you don't get any sense that there could be anything else going on so you know as a viewer that it's just a bullshit defense without any basis because you haven't seen any clue about it. So it wasn't really like a plausible plot twist for me. I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking it. It's law and order after all. <laughs> I, I, I do not think you are. I think you're exactly right. We didn't see any indication that this woman could fly off of the handle at any moment. <laughs> you know, I think that's definitely a defense that a female attorney would have to broach with her client. Um, now, Jackie, um, I'm just spitballing here. <laughs> But um, any chance that, um, you know, this was, I, I don't know, menopause, you know, <laughs> may as well say, uh, maybe you're gaining some weight and, <laughs> oh, Jesus. you know, I mean, like, you may as well go the full Monty. Exactly. Yeah. Well, one of the things I think that you pointed out that was the more interesting sort of sexist thread in the episode, but of course, this episode doesn't actually point that out. So it's sort of like lost, you know, it never gets picked up, is the Skoda versus Olivet dueling psychiatry yes. situation. She made it to the top in male society, and now that she's in trouble, she's a damsel in menopausal distress. What do they say about an estrogen-depleted woman carrying a loaded gun? That's not science. It's a bumper sticker. Don't tell me you're buying any of this nonsense. Of course not, but a jury might. Was HRT withdrawal the reason she murdered someone? No. I got to tell you, you pump anyone full of enough drugs and then remove them, it's got to affect both emotion and behavior. Olivet's a woman, and she's the one saying this defense is bullshit, but Skoda is the dude, and so the defense like puts the weight on him to sort of say, it, it was really, really uncomfortable for me, and also I think the strongest part of this episode by far were the dueling psychiatrists on the stand uh, section of it. I think we, had to, we took a break from the Arnez acting. I think that's why it was the, most, uh, the strongest part of the episode. <laughs> we got to see uh, J.K. Simmons. 
Uh, let's not ignore the fact, by the way, speaking of, that we got to enjoy Gopher from Love Boat in this episode. Let's <laughs> That's not, true. Rebecca, let's not rush past that so quickly. We have another Hey, It's That Guy. Hey, it's that guy. Yeah. yeah. Neil Skinner, the oil tycoon, was Fred Grandy. Oh, man. That was one that, like, I knew I knew, but I didn't know. Oh, thank you. Pylon Petroleum. She was my baby. Started trading oil futures from a rented room over a barber shop in Amarillo until I had enough to start drilling on my own. That's I feel right. some relief now. Gopher from Love Boat, and he was a four-term congressman from Iowa. And, and Fred Thompson is in this episode. It's like a powerhouse of political uh, power and influence in this cast. Of people I would never vote for. <laughs> <laughs> but did, Jim, Jimmy, did you know that uh, Fred Grandy was the best man at the wedding of David Eisenhower and Julie Nixon? No. It's like I could have just made that up, but I didn't. <laughs> right? It was go you know, for my, my co-host, uh, here's a piece of trivia that uh, is not nearly as interesting as yours, but my co-host Matt Belknap uh, is childhood friends or uh, with uh, Charlie Grandy, who's Fred's son. Oh, Really? So look at look at how it all Kevin Bacon's together. We all have a little piece into Kevin Bacon. No wonder you recognized Fred. <laughs> sure, that was why. And it wasn't my lonely Saturday nights watching Love Boat as a kid. <laughs> well, let's put on ABC. Oh, there he is. You got to think that the guy who played Gopher has some killer dad jokes, though. You got to think that he does, right? I would imagine he's got some good stuff, at least talking about Lauren Tweez and her coke habit. <laughs> <laughs> Well documented. That is not gossip. It's well documented. <laughs> oh, God. But, I mean, it really seems when you look at Fred Grandy's character and then you look at Fred Thompson, it seems like the writers definitely think that anyone outside of the city talks like Foghorn Leghorn. So you're after the cosmetics, Kahuna. Oh, she has nerve. Not to mention several organs below the Mason-Dixon. Let's just rope this bull, why don't we? Well, to be blunt, she'd like me to jump down, turn around, and pick a bale of cotton. <laughs> I don't not tell you. He's wearing a bolo tie like an asshole. Everything <laughs> <laughs> about it was cartoony. Well, it just goes with that continuing trope, right? Law and order. When you go to Jersey, everyone's an untrustworthy scumbag. Uh-huh. When you right. go to Connecticut, everyone's just like a yokel who has no idea what they're doing. You know, every time you leave the city, it's just, it's all downhill from there, no matter what the context. So great. <laughs> and we're going to rope this bull by the horns. And it's always <laughs> this... Is that what he said? Something yeah. like that? <laughs> Why don't we just rope this hole? Okay, that, that, he might as well just say, hey, let this dog won't hunt. He might as well just say that. <laughs> I'm just waiting for, like, some anecdote about, like, Mrs. McGillicuddy. <laughs> yeah, well, at least... <laughs> I, I say... I say. <laughs> that was the extent of my father language impression. That's all I had to add. <laughs> now, we see Jackie smoking cigars, like you say, and playing poker with the boys, and we're told that... The secret of her success is to act like a man in a man's world, uh, selling cosmetics. The man's whatever. world of makeup. Uh, makeup, right. Now, <laughs> right. Well, Max Factor. Let's not ignore Max Factor. <laughs> Rebecca, is there a difference between being strong and confident and being masculine, which is how they wrote Jackie? Yes. The difference is in the eye of the sexist beholder, because as you know, as occasionally happens on this show, like my feminist tackles get raised. And this idea, and I think this was also a moment in time. What year did this episode come out? Oh, I think it was like 2004. Right. So we sort of have now, I think, a world where you have a woman executive and she can just be an executive. She doesn't have to be like, I mean, not always, but she doesn't have to be like the lady executive, right? (laughs) (laughs) But for whatever reason, the people who wrote this episode believed that it was enough of a phenomenon that in order for that to be in any way plausible meant that she had to wear 
negligees while smoking cigars with men. That is the only possible way to explain her success. Not any kind of, I don't know, expertise or hard work. The only way to explain it was wearing negligees while smoking cigars in smoky back rooms. Ridiculous. Horrible. (laughs) I like Jimmy. Horrible. (laughs) He's got feminist tackles, too. It it really, you know, it did. I guess it goes to show you what kind of a snowflake I am out here in my elitist bubble. (laughs) But uh, uh, it did. It it, it rang so dumb guy out in front of his trailer going, that's how women, that's how the only way they can be a... Uh, executive and say, act like a man. It's horrible. Yeah, it really was. Well, so, okay, so Jackie is told to act like a man in in a man's world, and that's who she is. But in the end, it's like this quintessential middle-aged woman punchline that brings her down. It's menopause. So are the writers, Jimmy, being chauvinistic on purpose, you think, to make a statement about this character, or are they just chauvinists? (laughs) So that I can sleep at night, I'm going to say they're doing it on purpose. Okay. Being ironic. Right? Yeah. I mean, they, they have to be. I mean, these, these are obviously the people that write these. These are smart people. These it, They can't honestly look at each other and go, well, that's the, that's the reality, so let's write it. I mean, right? <laughs> Please say. No, I, I actually agree with you. I think... And I think a lot of this happens in the editing process, which we've talked about a lot. I think there's very often more material there that we as viewers don't get to see because in the process of cutting the show together... Whatever person decides that that kind of context isn't important. So maybe there was like a really smart squad room conversation between, you know, um, Esapatha Murkison and uh, Briscoe about the sexism of this whole thing and it being ridiculous. Right. But they just cut it out. I mean, that's very possible. At least I like to think it is. <laughs> Wouldn't you have rather seen that conversation other than, uh, Mommy loved me and not the sled? <laughs> <laughs> I just couldn't wait to use my new sled. And I flew down the hill right into a tree. And the sled shattered. And I thought, oh my God, she's going to kill me. She just bought this sled. But she picked me up. And she ran all the way to the hospital. She loved me, Arthur. Not the sled. <laughs> what, a, what a way to think your mother... I mean, I, I understand that's the whole t- turn of the episode. But what a... I mean, you want to talk about horrible writing. That, that's what you settled on? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Rosebud. I, I fell down and she didn't hug the, the, the inanimate object. She came to the human being. <laughs> Which I was calling bullshit because I said, she just stole that from Kramer versus Kramer. Exactly. It was uh, 100% stolen from Kramer versus Kramer. <laughs> I don't remember who won that battle. Was it Kramer? <laughs> oh, yeah. It was, t- it was close. I know you guys are in the legal uh, uh, TV shows and movies. I don't remember it that cl- uh, clearly. Well, we did get our degrees from uh, Law and Order University. At Hudson University. Oh, yes, Hudson University. <laughs> we are Hudson, where the bad guys go to school. Which guys go to Hudson? Good for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> it's very competitive. <laughs> I know that we have to get to the reason why Jackie you know, killed the stockbroker, but is the average person going to follow that CNBC explainer about getting double-crossed on a stop-loss order? Nope. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you guys. The only reason I didn't cancel this uh, uh, appearing on this podcast was I would hope somebody would explain that part of it to me. (laughs) No. No idea. No idea. And even when she went over $32,000, I was like... Tell me more than that, because I still don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it wasn't the idea that she was like very, very, very rich, so this wasn't like a lot of money to lose, so why would she risk everything? Yeah, it's a half a billion, and I did the math, yeah. right, on percentages, right. like if for my salary, <laughs> if that 32000 <laughs> based on Jackie's, that is point zero 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 
three cents <laughs> of a cent. Oh my gosh, would you murder over that? That's a Subaru Forester right there. I don't know if I'd murder over it, but thirty-two grand isn't nothing. I guess I don't know. Maybe if I really didn't like to lose. Uh, but if you had menopausal rage and a one iron, just happen to be. <laughs> Lying around. <laughs> Which she knows how to use because she plays in a man's world. <laughs> I still don't get why she ended up having to kill the dog, though. Did she kill the dog dead? Well, the dog was dead. I, you know, oh, I, yeah, the dog was dead. Oh, she's sort of fit of rage, guys. <laughs> but this is the thing. And, Jimmy, I don't know if you felt this way, too. It's sort of like the black hole that is the stock explanation. We never actually got, like, a satisfying theory of the crime. Like, you went nope. there, and this is what happened, and then this happened, and this, like, and we know this. Be- that never happened. It was just like, we accuse you. But there was, didn't seem to be any evidence that she did it. Am I crazy? Wrong about that? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, let's not ignore what you just said. Let's remember that opening scene. And I know we're going way back. And we can ignore this, by the way. When I say let's not ignore this, I'm not in charge of this show. <laughs> um, when you say that about the dog, it just, it just dawned on me. Like, all right, so the dog sees the dead body, walks around it, makes that perfect blue clues paw, and then she goes, <laughs> nope, you've got to die too. Did she kill the dog? Apparently, yeah. Wouldn't the dog? Wouldn't you kill the dog first because he's barking that you just murdered? I mean, what's going? I, I, yeah. ah, there's a lot of holes in this thing. Well, what kind of stupid dog would just sit there and watch his master get you know bludgeoned by a you know? Okay, <laughs> I don't know. Is this some kind of game, boss? What are we doing this weekend? <laughs> right? Well, that's that's makeup, Maven Jackie. She wouldn't be killing my master. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a distinct lack of continuity between what we saw at the beginning and what it turned out to be. And it's like that was only, you know, especially now watching it on demand. Like that was only 38 minutes ago, guys. Like my memory is not that bad. <laughs> right. I agree, hundred percent. I think there's, you know, obviously it was some effort to sort of shoehorn in the rip from the headline story, which nobody could guess what it was. With the, you know, that's in the middle between between the front and the back side of it. So, because you have to get like a really serious crime and not just I I lied to the FBI. I'm gonna call BS on your guessing what it was thing after we hear the rip from the headlines thing because I know what it is. I think, but like, there's a lot of reasons why it shouldn't be that too. Can I guess what we th- do? We think it's the Martha Stewart. Oh uh, yes, yeah. 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 But in no way resembles it except for the stock thing, right? Let's talk about that after. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jimmy, I'm curious. What kind of inmate do you think Jackie became? Well, I think without those pills or whatever that those hormones, she's going to be a, fly off the handle at the drop of a hat. <laughs> she starts right? her own They're gang. Oh, absolutely. No question. She's sitting around passing out cigars. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's what men do when you're in prison. That's she's. Oh, she, there's no doubt she's going to be in charge of that cell block. You know that. It was like Goodfellas. She was like slicing garlic and like you know right. drinking wine and having parties in her cell. You know, just like the boys. See, I think she would be making jailhouse mascara in her toilet. <sighs> if you think there's a market for that, I suppose. If I, you know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know your show well enough, but I want your sigh isolated and played every episode. <laughs> it could be your ringtone. <laughs> it was gorgeous. It was, ah, oh, okay. <laughs> All right, let's take a look at the real-life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Ripped from the Headlines. You think you know who did you it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Ripped from the This episode is clearly inspired by the insider trading case involving Martha Stewart. Clearly? Clearly, yeah. (laughs) Before achieving fame as television's most famous domestic maven, Stewart worked as a fashion model. Her first nine-to-five job was, ironically, as a stockbroker, 
Through the 80s and the 90s, she made nearly $1 billion in publishing and television programmes focused on cooking, entertaining and fine living. Her troubles began in 2001. Sam Waxall, CEO of pharmaceutical manufacturer M-Clone, suddenly dumped $5 million of his own stock. The FDA had just rejected his company's new cancer drug and he wanted to cash out before the public announcement devalued his shares. Waxall and Stewart shared the same stockbroker. He notified Stewart of the unusual sell-off and they agreed to sell her shares too. The transaction saved the multimillionaire about $46,000. Regulators became suspicious and questioned Stewart. The celebrity had no direct knowledge of the cancer drug's rejection, but she lied to investigators about knowing of Waxall's stock dump. They charged her with obstruction of justice. In 2004, Martha Stewart was sentenced to five months in a federal prison, five months of house arrest, and fined $30,000. <laughs> Now, Jimmy, what's your take on Martha Stewart? Well, I think she's dynamite. Now she's hosting a show with Snoop Dogg. Yes. <laughs> I, I completely yeah. agree. I think she's very funny. When I say I don't like her, I mean, I don't like bake the cookies that she bakes, and I don't arrange flowers, and I don't have, like, a home in the coast of Maine and all that stuff. But I do think there was a lot of bullshit around her arrest for this crime that was, in some ways, I think a what was like seen as a comeuppance for her because she was is and was very often characterized as being like an aggressive business person right but the way that she's characterized as she's characterized often as like a woman playing in a man's world she's aggressive she's assertive she makes choices that like her employees don't like guess what she smokes fine cigars guess what every fucking ceo in the world does that every successful ceo in the world does that Moments ago, you're contradicting what you said. You said that you didn't think this was based on her at all, yet you just described this exact character. You did. Well, you did. I don't like the way that they made this character actually like that, though, because I don't think that Martha Stewart is necessarily like that. That's the way she's characterized. Admit you're letting your love of Martha Stewart clear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I might be. I might you be. You just described somebody that went to prison and did something very, very wrong. So, of course, the answer would be give her a TV show with Snoop Dogg. <laughs> <laughs> like, certainly, that's the next step on that person's uh, timeline. No, I, listen, I, what Rebecca said is right. Like when, when Martha Stewart does the Comedy Central roasts or, you know, does stuff like that, I, I do find her somewhat charming. And I like, actually liked her version of The Apprentice when she had that, the one season of her doing The Celebrity Apprentice or The Regular Apprentice. So I don't disagree with that. That said, uh, not, not my cup of tea. But there's an issue of parody, though, around Martha Stewart, right? Because, like, I remember at the time there's a lot of reporting about the fact that she got a pretty severe punishment for something that happens all the time that other people are not punished as severely for and her defense was basically like i got a call from my broker who like suggested i do this thing and i did it and then you know no but the trial wasn't about that at all it was about lying i get it you can lie to the cops but you can't lie to the fbi But if you look at that time in america and you look at like all the infographics they have about what martha actually did versus like what a lot of other people did who by the way were all men and did not go to prison but perhaps paid a fine or had to do some other sort of like you know lesser punishment i do think there was some sort of like come up in sexist bullshit in that sentencing. I really do. Do you think it was sexist or fame? 
I think fame played as much into it as sexism did. That's, again, just a comedian's point of view. Yeah, you know what? You probably do have a point there. Um, side note, there are a lot of really interesting stories about Martha's persona in prison and the women that she was in prison with and what they got out of their confinement with her. I suggest you link to some of that on our on this webpage because it's really interesting. These women are now, like, making blankets and, like, know how to bake things. Like, it's super <laughs> oh, really? freaking interesting. Yes. Yeah. Uh, do you remember at the uh, right before the Martha Stewart trials where everybody was outside of the uh, courthouse uh, uh, chanting, lock her up? Remember all that? Yeah. And then, remember how much fun that happened? <laughs> Some of those people saved those signs. <laughs> <laughs> right? They're reusable, which is something to learn from Martha. So it was perfect. Now, there's sometimes, Jimmy, you th- there are things that you think are career enders, and they just aren't. It wasn't for her. You know, like you said, sometimes for famous people, that's it. They go to jail because of whatever, tax evasion or drunk driving, and that ends their career, and you think that's going to do it, and other people end up with a second act. Yeah, like, like look at uh, – like a great example is Wesley Snipes. Wesley uh, was a terrific actor who probably now can't get anything more than a C-level movie, right? Because mm-hmm. of tax evasion, right? Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah something boring like that. <laughs> Something boring that's only taking out our country. It's only taking down our country. Yeah, yeah. The only time you hear about Wesley Snipes now is he's become like, like sort of like a meme about like, like dark-skinned men. It's like he's Wesley Snipes black. I think that's really sad because he did have like a pretty full career. He did add to the you know lexicon of the '80s and '90s. Yeah, he was great. Film industry he was for a good sure. Actor. Yeah, Jimmy, I'd like to know if you got an invitation, would you do the potluck dinner show with Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg? <laughs> So that's funny you say that because one of the very few times I brought my son to the Tonight Show, the, the little boy who was in, um, oh, uh, where the wild things are. Mm-hmm. I brought my son to meet the little boy uh, who starred in that movie, and the other guest that day was Snoop Dogg. And it was like <laughs> of all days to bring my son. <laughs> and sure enough, it was like, okay, we can't stick around. We got to get out of here as quickly as possible. Oh, What's shizzle. he famous for, Daddy? <laughs> yeah, I don't know, son. I think it has to do with abusing women. Oh, Let's go home now. <laughs> if this man offers you brownies, do not take them. Right, they are not a delicious treat, son. That's going to do it for us. We want to thank our guest, Jimmy Pardo. Jimmy, where can listeners follow you online and help you out with Podcastathon? Of course, everything's at jimmypardo.com. Twitter is at jimmypardo. And then uh, the Podcastathon, March 4th, will stream live at nevernotfunny.com. Again, it's 12 hours. We're raising money for Smile Train. There's a different celebrity guest or musician or actor or comic every half hour. And it's for a great cause, and it's nonstop fun. And Rebecca Lavoy, how can listeners follow you? Can I just say one thing first? Yeah, sure. My favorite episodes of At Midnight contain Jimmy Pardo. So yeah. if our oh listeners have not checked out At Midnight and want to, look for episodes that have Jimmy Pardo in them. He's my favorite panelist on Thank that you. show. <laughs> but anyway, if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law & Order Pod. Our newsreader was Cy Freider. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoy. Content assistance from Travis Roy. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review on iTunes. It helps others discover this program just like you did. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with U.S. Copyrights Act Fair Use Exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to know what episodes we're talking about in our upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. These Are Their Stories was recorded in Square Egg Studio and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Bunk, 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 bunk. 
partners in crime media. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.